Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. We're in a stream on the coast of Vancouver Island, and the rocks here are slick with this bright green stringy algae. It's really slippery, but I'm not going to fall. There's some Canada geese with their goslings, very cute, and beautiful songbirds in the distance. Oh, and by the way, I'm Molly Siegel. Get your hip waders on and join me as we sploosh through this estuary in search of teeny tiny salmon. All fish go in the bucket, and then once we put them into our viewers, we'll identify them. (laughs) Okay, we're all really excited about this find here, and I promise you, if you stay tuned, I will share what we found. But before we dive or wade into the show, I should let you know I'm sitting in for Laura Lynch, and this is What on Earth where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Today, we're talking about helping baby salmon survive. Estuaries, where freshwater and saltwater meet, are sort of like a nursery for young salmon. But development, industry, and climate change are raising the stakes here, putting this habitat at high risk. So we're going to find out how people are trying to change the course of that future for these fish. I meet up with the crew from Simon Fraser University just as they're wrapping up their lunch. We all kind of look like fly fishers decked out in our hip waders. Ben is a PhD student, Veronica is a research assistant, and Sarah. I'm just here. And Sarah's just my friend. And the one introducing Sarah. Okay, sure. Um, I'm Phoebe Gross. I'm a second year master's student in the Salmon Watersheds Lab at Simon Fraser University. And I'm working on climate change impacts on juvenile salmon. And today we're doing work in the Englishman River estuary. We're on the east coast of Vancouver Island in the city of Parksville. It's a nice sunny day. It's a bit windy. It's about mid-afternoon. And we're about halfway through our workday, so we're going out to a few more sites. The tide is their clock, so we need to get moving before their research site is submerged again. We walk over rocks and these small, thin, green succulents. That is uh, sea asparagus. You can actually eat that. Oh, the site is it's just right up here by that fallen log. We reach a muddy, rocky bank on an offshoot of the Englishman River. It's not too far from where it meets the Pacific Ocean. There's an RV resort, and I can see why you'd want to vacation here. It's idyllic with the mountain peaks across the ocean. But this waterfront view is rapidly changing, with human-caused global warming. Sea level rise is going to drive shifts in a number of really important things for salmon. Important things, including estuaries like this one. Rising seas will push these nurseries further inland. The problem is, though, people have developed some of those places. 
we have roads and concrete, buildings and oceanfront views. We talk a lot on this show about how people are moving away from changing shorelines. But what about salmon? That's what sets this work apart, and honestly what caught my attention. Often, restoring salmon habitat focuses on the present day. But this work asks, where are the estuaries likely to be in the future? And how can we start to protect those spaces for baby salmon? To answer that, Phoebe needs more information about where the fish live today. For a few years now, researchers at Simon Fraser University have been collecting data at eight estuaries across Vancouver Island. And Phoebe has it down to a routine. Yeah, so the first thing we do is um, set up our buckets. We'll fill them with water. Is this a bubble machine? Yeah, it's just to um, oxygenate the water so the fish don't suffocate in there. Right. Okay, it's time to catch some of the small fish living here. The group unfurls a net attached to two poles, which are so tall, taller than the average person. Lift it up a little bit more. One more time. Then two people wade into the water. They create a loop, walking the two ends of the net together to catch the small salmon. They reel them in. So now that you've corralled everything in here, what are you doing right now? We're scooping them into um, one of our buckets with the bubbler so that we can count and measure all of them. Not just how big or how small they are, but also what kind of fish they are. All fish go in the bucket and then once we put them into our viewers, we'll identify them. Whoa! This is a super... Super I think that's uh, yeah. So that was still, I believe, a sculpin, right? Like a very lime green color. Surprises like this small, vibrant lime green sculpin punctuate what's otherwise a bit of a repetitive series of tasks. Yeah. So now that we've scooped them into the bucket, um, Sarah's getting our fish viewers that have um, rulers in them, and the tally begins. Spooky forty-five. I stickle back. Oh, you just call them yeah. stickies. Yeah. yeah. Stickle back, 47 and 63. 6.5 for another okay. stickle back. You get the idea. And a sticky. Oh, there's a flat fish But there. the stars of the show uh, elude us. Six stickle back. We catch no salmon. No coho, no chum, no yep. chinook, no pink or sockeye. Yeah, I think we're good to dump. All right. Okay. Strain time. They also measure the water itself. Its temperature, how salty it is, how much oxygen is in it, and how acidic it is. Because all of those things help tell a story about where good salmon habitat is. Then they want to know what's kicking around that a small salmon would want to eat. Things like plankton and invertebrates. They start with a cone-shaped net attached to a rope so they can skim it across the surface of the water. Sarah reels in the rope. This is the sound of science. <laughs> and one more net to get a sample deeper and, uh, in the water. Together, this is hopefully helping us understand the prey that's available for juvenile salmon. Phoebe's days in the field bring her to different sites across Vancouver Island. But they all have this kind of rhythm. Catch and count the fish. Adobe at 47. Measure the water quality. 19.7. Then find out what's on the menu. Aquatic roly polies. 
sweet. I don't know. And on to the next site. So yeah, that's it for the day. With the odd interruption along the way, like that crow. And yes, that is a crow. Anyways, they go from site to site until they gather enough data to start painting a picture. After a day of waiting and counting and collecting, Phoebe and I drive down a residential street to the head of the estuary. A spit of infill land sort of juts out from the end of the road. There actually used to be an art gallery here. Right now we're at this the end of this piece of land that the restoration is happening. Now restoration is in progress. The building has been torn down. Eventually, at this site, the concrete and reinforced shoreline will also be dismantled, and plants that grow in the estuary will be replanted. And all of those things will help the young salmon. Both today and as sea level rise pushes their nursery habitat closer and closer to the concrete. We're looking right at the mouth of the estuary, so to our right is uh, the coastline and the ocean, and then looking into the left, um, we have most of the estuary. And on the other side of the mouth, there's the RV resort I mentioned earlier. This view here is kind of the front lines of sea level rise. It's like within like a meter or two by the end of the century. Um, But then what does that translate to in terms of like, what kind of stuff is going to be underwater, likely based on the projection? The trailer park will likely be um, partly underwater at least, and a number of these houses along the coastline will probably be partly inundated. Everything will move further inland, the trees, then the marsh, and then the beach itself. At least that's how it works in theory. But there's a caveat to this. We have all of these houses on one side and this trailer park on the other side. Um, So if they're there and they're not moving and the estuary is moving in, the estuary has nowhere to go and it'll eventually get drowned out. And that's kind of a process that's referred to as coastal squeeze. And eventually lose the estuary and you lose that important nursery area for salmon. Yeah, exactly. The work Phoebe and the Salmon Watersheds Lab are doing will create a future map for salmon nurseries on Vancouver Island. And by predicting where on land these little fish may need to be, other groups can use this science to make decisions about what to protect or restore. Are we investing in something that, you know, is going to exist in 100 years with sea level rise and climate change? My name's Steve Henstra. I'm a restoration biologist uh, working for the Nature Trust of British Columbia. He works with other conservation groups and the federal government, restoring estuaries, including this one. I meet Steve on a popular walking path nearby. This path we're standing on now, uh, the Mine Dyke Road, was actually built as a a log-booming road out to the spit. So they used to boom logs from forestry there and then drag it out of the the bay of the estuary at high tide. That was in the 1960s. A berm built at that time was blocking the natural flow of tides. So in 2017, the Nature Trust of BC took it out as part of restoration, allowing the tides back in, which helps create the conditions that estuary plants need to thrive. But restoring existing habitat is one thing. Steve also wonders about what actions will make the most difference in the future. 
your dollars are better spent like future proofing that estuary, so to speak, where you're focusing on adjacent upland land acquisition. In other words, should restoration and protection be focused on the places these estuaries are moving towards as the sea level rises? Estuaries make up just 3% of the coastline, but they're crucial habitat for so many animals, including salmon. And salmon and people have a very long history on Vancouver Island, one that goes back long before colonization. The researchers at Simon Fraser University partner with First Nations at each of their sites. And here on Nanus First Nation traditional territory, Chris Bob, who is a counselor with the nation, describes the importance of this place. The reason our village was there is because it was right beside Kualuk, or the Englishman River. And that, that word means dog salmon. You know, that's what got our people through the winters. We would process that, we would smoke that fish, we would store that fish, we would trade that fish, but it would provide for us through all those winters, all those generations. We have, you know, archaeological proof showing our occupancy for thousands of years. And Canada's been here for, what, 150? And nosedive industries? Industries like forestry and fishing. Our wealth is being damaged and taken away and the thing is we we do the best we can to protect what we have left you know and we try to ensure you know that resource is going to be there for our future generations but how do we actually do that when so much change is already happening later on the show we will hear more about how first nations are doing this work The next morning, I meet a group of volunteers who are getting to work near the estuary. Okay, this is a spotted knapweed which hasn't bloomed yet, mm-hmm. Yana, and that's that's the, the bloom. I found right. one down here, as I mentioned in my email. I'm Dave Hutchings. I'm the uh, stewardship coordinator for the Aerosmith Naturalists, and we've been working down here on the Englishman River Estuary, basically with the Nature Trust to try and reduce the number and control the spread of invasive plants on the estuary. There's a lot of them are very small, like like this as well. Dave and I chat as we walk on a trail towards the water. The estuary is a, is a living organism, basically, and it will change. Not only does the river flow change, but the direction of the river changes. And of course, with sea level rise, that's going to change the whole hydrology of the area as well. So what Dave and the other naturalists are doing is trying to keep the current estuary habitat healthy by pulling out invasive species that actually make it difficult for the native ones to survive. Basically, since colonization, the, the, the estuary has been transformed by white settlers into, um, into a, number, a number of uses. It's been used as farming, so there's been a lot of ditching, there's been a lot of diking on the estuary. Then the logging, and the development, and the art gallery. Of all the places Phoebe and the rest of the Simon Fraser University team study, this one is one of the most heavily altered. It's day two of our field visit, and Phoebe leads the way to a different offshoot of the Englishman River. This 
part we're standing on will probably all be flooded at high tide. Got it. Okay. So you got to get to work. (laughs) Exactly. The ocean seems a bit far away this time. On one bank, there's a meadow, and on the other, there's trees and bushes. The river is full of bright green algae. Where we'll, we suspect there might be some salmon. So I'm just uh, in about like 20 centimeters of water. It's pretty shallow. Yesterday, the crew actually didn't find a whole lot of salmon. Lots of vegetation. But reeling in the same net here, there he is. we already seem to be having a bit more luck. Oh, is a salmon? Yep. Mm-hmm. The count begins. Um, Coho 53 and 41. Maybe some Oh, there's some flatfish in there. Oh, really? Yeah. We only have seven salmon. Oh, and yeah. all coho? Yep, all coho. In previous years, we've got like over 100 here. Oh. Yeah. But I guess previously it hasn't been as hot at this time of year is one difference. Yeah, last year it was a lot cooler and the water was not as low. So I think that's making a, a pretty big difference this summer. All of these observations help Phoebe and others figure out what salmon need to survive climate change into the future. Um, seeing where in the estuary these pockets of colder temperatures might be, which will be super important as temperatures continue to rise and reach these like stressful and lethal levels for juvenile salmon. Okay, so that's some of the work underway to protect salmon habitat on the Englishman River estuary. But I wanted to learn more about the other estuaries Phoebe Gross and her team are researching in partnership with First Nations. So let's head north on Vancouver Island to the heart of Comox First Nation territory. Here, the stakes are high for the future of salmon. Without salmon in our rivers, there wouldn't be the Comox people. The salmon is a huge chunk of who we are. It's a big stable of our food. It was a stable of our trading of our resources back in the day. It was, it plays such an important role to our people um, that if we were to lose such a key role, it would be another devastating loss to a part of who we are, essentially. That's Cedar Frank. He's a young member of the Comox Guardian Watchman program. And he's joined me in a virtual meeting, along with his uncle, Corey Frank, who manages the program. Hi, Corey. Hi, Cedar. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? Great, yourself? I'm good, thanks. I love your matching hats, Guardian Watchman hats. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So, Corey, I, I'm, I'm wondering if we can start the conversation by going back in time for a minute before colonization. Can you describe to me what was the role of the Comox estuary for your nation? It was kind of like the the hub for our people um, with the ancient fish trap fishery and the amount of shellfish and everything in there and the wildlife around, you know, the amount of streams that fed into the estuary. It was, uh, it's it's kind of why, you know, this place is known as a land of plenty. Um, there was fish in the rivers here year round between the Solom and the Puntledge. So we had nations coming from all over the place to trade during the winter months and stuff when they wouldn't have fish in their systems per se. Um, you know, we had nine sort of main distinct families from here that, uh, lived throughout the territory year round, but this was the main hub of the territory back then. I'm curious if we can contrast that uh, with, with what it's like today. Maybe you can paint a picture of what the Comox estuary looks like today. 
Yeah, it's it's night and day. Like when I was a young child, you could go down and there was still lots of clams and oysters and you could find ghost shrimp crawling around and little eels and short crab. And none of that exists now. Cedar, can you describe some of the biggest drivers of these changes? A lot of the change has been affecting a lot of the uh, habitat to do with evasive species such as the geese as well. Plus, with any development buildings going on as well, if they don't have the proper, for example, environmental or um, sediment fences, people watching their environmental monitors, making sure they're keeping them out of the river for any buildings going up near the river. Because um, there's been incidents before where there's been uh, leakage or dust, mud runoff coming up off of buildings that were being built near the river and they weren't watching some of the sediment leaking off. Yeah. Um... You know, I don't want to play the blame game and say it's this or that or whatever. It's 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 everything involved, basically, as to what's happening with the estuary. And sea level rise is definitely playing a big part in it. Um, some of the carrots grasses and things like that, the sedge beds are starting to be affected, like with higher intensity storms and everything else like that. The sedge beds are getting washed away. You know, the erosion is is playing a big part in that. And then things like heat domes and stuff in the summer are wreaking havoc on things like eelgrass and uh, other shore plants. And we also have some other invasive birds that are really hard on the salmon stock numbers um, because they just, they school them up like wolves, basically like herd them up. um, And they eat so many when they're migrating out as young fish and then we also have um, pinniped problems or seal problems with the fish going back and forth, migrating out as babies and coming back as adults and being, you know, picked off along the way. Corey, you're describing, you know, this huge list of, of cumulative impacts uh, to the, the estuary habitat, you know, but but you've also been so active in, in the work that the Comox guardians are doing to to protect and, and restore that ecosystem as well. I'm wondering if you can describe for me um, the work that the Guardians do to uh, to steward these estuaries on the territory. I'll start by saying we have a lot of stewardship group partners that we do a lot of this work with. Uh, some of that involves like eelgrass restoration and transplanting. So we'll take donor stock from patches of eelgrass in the estuary and then pull it up you know, regroup it, retie it with um, metal rings and twist ties and put them back in the ground. And it's amazing to see, like I've seen some of the video from the divers that how quickly they're just replanting it and animals are moving into that eelgrass as they're trying to replant it. So it's kind of kind of one of those feel good things, like because you can see what's happening as you're doing the work. And then we also do the exposure fences for the geese here in the estuary and a bunch of other estuaries. Um, That and another stewardship group we're working with, there's an old mill site in the estuary that has been decommissioned and that site is being put back to its uh, more natural state now. So that should help with the seal problem and help the uh, young salmon as they're coming down the river into the estuary and starting their journey. Mm-hmm. Just uh, so I'm clear, eelgrass for our listeners that um, are not on the not living by the ocean, it's sort of just like a seagrass, and and many uh, sea creatures sort of use it to protect themselves from predators, right? Yes, and it's a great uh, sequester of carbon. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's great. We we like to hear about those things here on What on Earth. I'm curious, Corey, how does Comox culture and knowledge from elders help you and, and the other guardians decide how to care for the estuary? That is actually a great question. Um, I, I've asked a lot of questions over the years. Unfortunately, in the past few years, we've lost a lot of our elders. So they played a huge important role in a lot of the work we do like a lot of the guidance we've gotten over the years is you know what is it you used to do what would you like to see done now what are some of the things you'd like to see protected so a lot of information from them that way and if i'm stuck for names or what certain things mean or what they were used for they've always been that wealth of knowledge that we've needed to keep pushing forward is there a specific um, example of of that yeah, like a prime example for me, I think, would be in the way, you know, like the questions you asked earlier about what do you see now? I I can go back to them and say, you know, what was it like when you were a child? Like paint me a picture of what things should look like so that we know what to look for and sort of base some of our, you know, solutions for some of the problems. That's we'll base a lot of it on that. And that happens quite often, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Cedar, what inspired you to be part of the Guardian program? So for myself, what inspired me, um, first of all, was my dad was a Guardian um, before I was of age to do the full-time stuff. So that got me a huge interest in hearing what the Guardianship was about and what was done in the day-to-day work. Then as I started the summer program, it started building a lot more realization of the connection to the lands that we actually still have. Like one great example I love to say is a lot of people can look at a tree and just say, hey, that's a tree. Where with the knowledge through the department, through the guardianship that I've gotten, and through my dad as well, is I can go outside, look at a tree, and look at these plants and be like, hey, this tree is good for this. Like a cedar tree is good for clothing, rope totem poles, carving, houses, it's, you name it, it's good for everything. So it was a lot more eye-opening to the culture aspect of our world, of being out on the land. And it basically brought a big drive into me to want to keep the land the way it is and to bring it back to what it used to be, which falls upon the knowledge that um, my uncle learned from the elders and I'm learning from my uncle, right? So it's it's all passed down and it's a great push to, for me to want to pass the knowledge down that I'm learning to the next generation and want to keep our territory, our land, the nature, the everything the way it's supposed to be and bring it back to what our elders remember it was originally. Mm. Corey, hearing Cedar reflect on this, I'm I'm sort of curious what it's been like for you to work with younger generations like your nephew Cedar and, you know, others through the Guardian program. For me, it's actually been kind of a, a dream come true. Because um, growing up and, and gaining a bit, all this knowledge from our Nino gods and, and, and knowledge holders is that, you know, you're given this knowledge from these people, but it's, it's not yours. It's yours to use for now, but it's also yours to hang on to and to teach to the younger generations. So I get the best of both worlds out of this. Right. Yeah. And, and Cedar, I guess eventually you'll be in that position too, right? Oh, yep. And that's, that's exactly the way it goes. Uh, knowledge gets passed down from generation to generation, and it keeps getting passed on and passed on. That's the way 
things used to be, and that's the way we're going to keep things going. Now, we've talked about the Comox estuary, but but Cedar, I know you've also been doing some monitoring work on, on the other estuary, uh, the Salmon River estuary, in partnership with researchers at Simon Fraser University. I'm wondering, can you tell us a bit about that estuary and, and that work that you're doing there? Uh, yes, I can. So uh, with the Simon Fraser University, a lot of the work that we've been doing up there with them is uh, beat chaining, and that's to do a lot of uh, data collection on the juvenile salmon. So what we do is we do beach stains. Uh, we get a stain net out. We pull it out, bring it in. We get a count of the individual species of salmon and figure out which habitats uh, each species likes to grow in. So Chinook and Coho, they grow in two separate areas in the estuary. Like you will see them intermingle with each other. But with a lot of this data, we're showing that they prefer certain types of habitats as well as they have uh, data loggers that they put in there through the entire process. So if they're there for five days, those data loggers will stay in there for five days and collect uh, flow measurement, temperature, uh, oxygen, and so forth on the with more data on there. And they'll accumulate all that at the end and put that in a big form and send that to us. So we get to see the uh, behind the scenes of it as well. And, um, and what's that? What What is that sort of behind the scenes peak? What's that starting to to tell you right now? Like, are you starting to see results from that work? Yep. So this is, I think, if I'm right, Uncle, this is like the third year that we've done this now? Yes. Yeah. So after three years, uh, there's definitely been um, a notice in the data increase. There actually is a higher population of juvenile salmons um, in the estuary going up. Oh, wow. So... What a lot of the data is showing us with the slight changes that we've done, and I believe a lot uh, a part of it is with another restoration project we did, played a big part in their population coming back up again because it created more pools, essentially more flow to more areas for more um, preferred habitat for the species of salmon and more hiding places for them to stay away from predators. Mm. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, earlier we, we talked about sea level rise as one of the impacts, the climate impacts that these salmon are going to experience. And then when I when I hear you speak about, you know, that you're actually seeing th- the results of this work and, and more uh, juvenile or, or baby salmon in this area than in previous years, I'm wondering, you know, how does that make you feel uh, about the future? Uh, it makes me feel awesome, honestly. Like fish, fish is right up my alley. I love anything to do with them. And to see their increase, to see an increase rather than a decrease in their population up there is outstanding. It's very happy and promising. So that to me, it makes me feel like in the next, you know, like whenever I have kids when, or the next generation, it would nephew, whatever, I can bring them to the same places and be like, look, we can fish for the same fish so they can experience the same thing that I got to experience. And if not, experience it on a better level, right? You know, this is a lot of work that the um, Guardian Watchmen are taking on. But I'm I'm wondering, Corey. You know, are there other changes you would like to see uh, from governments to help protect estuaries on your territory? Yeah, um, there's a lot of things that need to be done. But like you said, uh, throwing the government word in there, we need federal, provincial, municipal, and Aboriginal governments to all come together to get a lot of this work done. We had a symposium here way back in the day, and I kind of coined the phrase that partnerships and collaboration are going to be the way to go because, you know, we're here, everybody else is here, nobody's going anywhere. 
There's no point in fight, fighting over these little pots of money. We need to get together and do the work together to make the, you know, money go the furthest and to get the best bang for a buck out of it. Yeah. And I, I, I guess you've got a lot of work to do, so I should probably let you get back to that. But thank you both for sharing your time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. We really yeah. appreciate it also. Great. Yeah, thank you. It was awesome. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth. I'm Molly Siegel, in for Laura Lynch. Coming up, we'll meet a couple of climate heroes putting themselves out there to raise awareness in their village. Caitlin Lowe remembers exactly where she was when torrential rain and flooding hit Halifax. I was attending a performance of the Book of Mormon in Halifax and the emergency alerts went off and you could just see the wave of people just checking their phones all at once. You heard the alarms going off all at once. And um, so it was pretty, pretty scary to, to sort of be in that situation. But it was also great to see people who were taking the alerts really seriously and, and trying to check things. For Caitlin, this is what progress looks like. People taking alerts seriously. She researches emergency management at Dalhousie University in Halifax with the McKechn Institute for Public Policy and Governance. In Nova Scotia, people are grieving, and the cleanup has just begun after deadly flooding. But when emergencies hit, how the province communicates the risk is crucial to safety. Caitlin says Nova Scotia has used more emergency alerts since the 2020 mass shooting in Port-a-Peak. But she says we've still got more to learn. The vast, vast, vast majority of people have never experienced an evacuation, have never really thought that they would have to experience an evacuation in their lives. And now we're sort of coming face to face with like uh, these major climate events that are happening. They're likely going to get worse. And uh, we, we need to start really educating uh, the public on, on steps that they can take uh, to, to make themselves more prepared. Caitlin wants officials to do a better job reaching out to vulnerable groups. She has two family members with disabilities, so she's seen firsthand how technological barriers can get in the way of people getting the information they need during an emergency. But she says there are solutions to that. How we're communicating with folks and making sure that we're, we're giving the uh, best uh, up-to-date information, but also in a way that can be read through adaptive technologies and assistive devices, and that um, people are, are aware of the things that they can be doing. Technology, yes, but also mobility, says one of Caitlin's colleagues at Dalhousie University. In Nova Scotia, we have a higher number of persons with disabilities, um, and the senior citizens uh, is probably the highest in, in Canada. And we do not have a, a clear understanding of how, what are our dedicated routes to evacuate if there is a mass evacuation necessary. That's Asan Habib. He's trying to work out a puzzle. How do you get everyone out of the city at once during an emergency? 
So he spent time modeling roads, routes, and vehicles in different mass evacuation scenarios. The project initially focused on hurricanes, which move steadily inland over a period of time. And in that case, he found it would take more than 20 hours to evacuate the entire downtown Halifax Peninsula. That's because the roads are narrow, and there are a limited number of entry and exit points. But Asan never imagined Nova Scotia would see multiple communities flooding and needing to evacuate at the same time. We need to plan our roads in a way so that it can entertain this kind of sudden instantaneous travel demand. Uh, which is only necessary for mass evacuation. These type of events required emergency countermeasures, say contraflow, taking all traffic out in one direction. And we do not have any preparedness of that kind. We know how to close roads, but we do not know how to deploy temporary right-of-way scenarios. Hassan says he's shared this research about the potential for bottlenecks with emergency managers but they've yet to incorporate it into their planning. He says the time is right now. We need to get ready for the worst. And and that's how we should be building our communities. That's how we should be building our networks. And we need to be collaborative and we need to help each other during this time. But how to help needs to be figured out in advance so that there is those help in place and, and it's a very important piece, particularly with the climate change. Extreme events are more frequent. And it's sorry to say, it, it will happen again. We reached out to the government of Nova Scotia's emergency management office. And they told us that right now, they're focused on responding to the floods. But that, quote, When major incidents such as this happen, a debrief will be done with our partners to understand the impacts and make improvements for future events. We have time now for some other climate news stories. A team of climate scientists with the World Weather Attribution Group says recent heat waves in Europe and the United States would have been virtually impossible without human-induced climate change. The group says that unless we stop burning fossil fuels and fast, heat waves will become more common, hotter, and longer lasting. And if you want to hear more about how the World Weather Attribution Group does its work, we did an interview about this last September. Just search online for The Race to Link Extreme Weather to Climate Change. The federal government has announced its plan to eliminate so-called inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Ottawa says this makes Canada the first country among wealthy, heavy-emitting nations to do so. The plan is to send federal funds only towards projects that significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions and decarbonize the sector. But advocacy groups like Environmental Defense say the government still needs to eliminate loopholes for fossil gas, fossil hydrogen, and carbon capture and storage. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe and have it delivered to your inbox every week.
It's time now for another nomination for our growing list of community climate champions. What on Earth listener Jean Wanless reached out to recognize Al Bottomley and Stephen Todoroff. They're both retired high school teachers in Sundridge, Ontario, a village west of Algonquin Provincial Park. They have diligently and faithfully every Thursday from 11.30 to 12.30. They show up at our post office with their faithful band of people. I have shown up with them and we just stand and talk to people coming in and out of the post office and give them climate information. So I just thought, you know, on a small scale, they are Sundridge's <laughs> climate action heroes. Well, of course we had to call up Al and Stephen to hear more about their weekly campaign, standing on the sidewalk outside of their local post office. We've been doing this for over a year, rain, shine, sleet, snow. This is Stephen. He says they talk to people passing by the post office to share ideas about personal climate solutions, like reducing driving and travel. And they send people home with a reminder. Every week we give out fridge magnets that I make my grandkids make with me, and on them are environmental slogans. So one week, here's an example, I don't know if you can see it, they're just dead wood that we get find in the bush that we slice up, we put a magnet on the back and we put a message on it. So this one was no new oil. We've had other messages like save the planet, make winter cool again, you know, because winter's not the same here as it was. Yeah. And those changes to the seasons and the local environment have been a wake up call for Stephen and Al. Their grandchildren are also a big motivation to speak up. Here's Al. I am a grandparent. In fact, I just had two twins born in November. Just amazing experience to see these two little babies. I have got more and more almost depressed about how we're handling our climate problem. I find Canada's way behind everyone else. I have become an activist for that reason. Ultimately, both Stephen and Al want governments to do more on climate but they aren't sitting idle and waiting. They're taking their own action within the community, like a recent event they organized to share information about electric vehicles with their neighbors. A lot of people are afraid of electric cars, which is ridiculous. It's like being afraid of a tame horse rather than a wild one. But um, yeah, that, that I think we did okay with that. Uh, the people who did show up, we're not talking millions. This is a rural area. We had what 80 about 80 so that was impressive and stephen knows there are other people out there waiting to speak their minds too there are a lot of other people out there just like us you know sitting in their kitchens you know what i mean wondering about what to do so i think there's an army waiting to be mobilized let's put it that way a big thank you to what on earth listener gene wanless for nominating stephen and al as community climate champions if there's someone in your life making a difference to the planet let us know. We especially want to hear from people from underrepresented groups. Just email your Climate Hero nomination to earth at cbc.ca. Tell us why they deserve to be recognized. And be sure to let us know how we can reach them and you. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. That's all for us this week. 
The show was put together by associate producers Daniel Piper and Zoe Yunker. Producers Rachel Sanders and me. Anna Park is our engineer this week. Katherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Molly Siegel. Laura Lynch is back next week. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.